There you go. Um, that's one of my favourite movie scenes because um, it's hilarious. Um, usually in action movies, the good guys kind of behave like they're indestructible. So like, I need to get out of this building. I'll wrap a hose around me and jump off. And they just they do whatever they want to do. And it's like they're indestructible. But in that movie, they're like real people. And so they just die. Um, no, it's just a movie, right? Uh, that movie's also got a special place in my heart because the first time I watched it, I was in Thailand and it had dodgy subtitles in English, which doesn't even make sense, over the English movie. <clears throat> and in that scene, like, they jump off and it's like, I don't know what made them jump off. And the movie said, maybe it was pride, maybe their egos made them jump. But on the subtitles, it was like, maybe it was pride, maybe the eagles pushed them. You're like, <laughs> anyway... Um, but it's good, it's a good scene. Um, but seriously, f- in real life, pride really can be deadly, not just in stupid movies like that. Uh, you guys heard of, I hope you have, you heard of the Titanic, right? Yes, yeah, so you heard about the life rafts on the Titanic? Have you heard about this? No? Okay, let me tell you. Um, you know the Titanic big ship, Leonardo DiCaprio and his girlfriend go down and Jack dies on the door that was too small, all that kind of stuff. In real life, right, The people who built this boat said that it was so big, so strong, so well made that it was unsinkable. It was the unsinkable ship. Now, we know how that ended. We know that it actually went down. But because they thought it was unsinkable, like this ship's so good, they only put enough life rafts for 50% of the people who the boat could carry. They're like, we don't want to wreck the view on the deck. Life rafts are just kind of for show. I don't know what they were thinking. And so they only put enough life rafts for half the people on the ship because they were so sure that this boat they'd made was indestructible. Pride can seriously be deadly. Pride is a dangerous thing. Now, what about in the Christian life? What about when it comes to the things of Jesus? What does pride do there? Well, the Bible, I, I reckon you could probably have a, have a guess and say, yeah, sure, I know the Bible says pride's a bad thing, so we should stay away from it or whatever. But why? What's at stake with pride? What's a little bit of pride going to do? Is it really going to matter? Tonight we're going to look at this passage together in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and what we're going to see is actually pride has the power to actually undo the whole, your whole of your Christian life. It's actually the opposite of what Jesus calls us to as Christians. And so there's some big stuff for us to see in this chapter tonight. So I want to pray that God would give us the humility to hear what he has to say to us tonight. So let's pray and then look at the passage together. Father God, please give us humility. I pray that you'd prepare us tonight to be people who are ready to listen to your word and submit ourselves to it. Some of us here tonight uh, may not know what to make of you, wouldn't necessarily say we were Christians, but Lord, I pray you'd give those people a humility to have a listen to what your word has to say tonight. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we'd hear you and understand and obey. Amen. All right, now the context of this passage that we're looking at tonight is that the Corinthian church has, has a pride problem. They've got a pride problem. And you can actually see that kind of running underneath the surface of the whole chapter or the, the 13 verses we're looking at. It's kind of in the background the whole time. But Paul kind of pretty much calls it out for what it is in verse 18. Check out verse 18. He says, Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I'll come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. So there's this problem of arrogance, of pride in the Corinthian church. It's running underneath all of it, 
But here's the first thing we're going to see in our passage in verses 1 to 13 tonight. Here it is. Pride leads to dangerously wrong judgments. Dangerously wrong judgments. See, in their pride, the Corinthian church had been making judgments about Paul, the guy who's writing this letter to them. Um, But that's a really big mistake when you realise who Paul is. Have a look at verse 1. And check out Paul. He says, this, is, this then is how you ought to regard us, how you should regard me, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. See, first and foremost, Paul says, I'm a servant, not of you guys in Corinth, but of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And Paul's been entrusted with this message, the good news about Jesus. He calls it there the mysteries that God has revealed. So God himself has chosen this guy, Paul, and he's given him a God-given message to share with the world, this mystery that needs to be revealed to the world. And so what's Paul's job? What's Paul got to do? It's to remain faithful to that message and to Jesus. Look at verse 2. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust, given a job, must prove faithful. His job is to be faithful to Jesus and to Jesus' message. And so look at verse 3. Who can judge Paul? Look at verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Paul's like the honey badger. Paul doesn't care. He doesn't care who judges him, not the Corinthians, not the courts of the world. He won't even judge himself. Paul doesn't care about any of that there's only one person who can judge Paul look at verse 4 my conscience is clear but that doesn't make me innocent it's the Lord who judges me Paul says you can't stand in judgment over me because Jesus is going to judge me he's the only one who'll do that I'm Jesus's servant with Jesus's message and Jesus is going to judge me and so then in verse 5 he turns to the Corinthians and he's got something to say to them look at verse 5 he says therefore Judge nothing before the appointed time. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. You guys don't get to judge me now. You wait to the end and Jesus will judge me. And he'll judge perfectly, says Paul. Even down to our motives, and our thoughts, and our hearts. And so for leaders like Paul, who've served faithfully, they'll get praise from God. Jesus will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll hear those words. Now the Corinthians, though, they've become so proud about who they are and why they think they're so good, that they're actually trying to do God's job. If they're sitting in judgment of Paul, and God's the one who's supposed to judge Paul and all leaders and all people, then they're trying to do God's judge. God's judge. God's job, they're trying to judge them. They're sitting in judgment over these leaders. And so in verse 6, Paul turns straight to them and he's just talking to them now. Look at verse 6. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos, another leader in the church, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us against the other. He's saying, All this stuff is about how you've been judging me. You've been judging Apollos, you've been judging me. You're like, oh, I think Apollos is pretty good. Paul, I could kind of take him or leave him. He's not that good. And Paul's saying, enough. Stop judging leaders. Stop being puffed up. Stop being full of yourselves, thinking that somehow you've got the right to sit in judgment of God's leaders that he put there. Enough. Stop it. It was a mistake to judge Paul because he wasn't an ordinary leader. 
He was Christ's servant, an apostle of God, put there by God, sent by Jesus. And so by rejecting Paul and sitting in judgment of him, they're actually sitting in judgment of God's messenger. And that was a big mistake. Imagine, think about this for a second. Imagine a big day at Wombie Beach. This is a photo taken a few years ago when um, the beach kind of just disappeared, if you guys remember that. I always know when these weeks happen on the Central Coast because I take my kids to Terrigal Beach and I turn up and I get there and like, it's legit like someone stole on the beach because it's just gone and just washed out to sea. That happens every few years on the Central Coast. So big day at Wombie. Imagine a day like this. Imagine two surfers out in the ocean. One surfer's really good. They know what they're doing. They've been surfing for years. The other surfer's just learning for the first time. Now, who's in more danger? Well, it's the learner, isn't it? They'll get smashed on a day like that. But I reckon there's one person who could be out on a day like this, if they were a lunatic, who would be in even more danger than a normal learner, and it's this person. Imagine someone who's still learning to surf. They're not good at it at all. They're terrible at surfing, but they think they're really good at it. Imagine a person who's got nothing, but they think they're like ready for the pro tour. And they're like, oh, sweet, big surf. I'm going to head out in that and just go for it. That person is in serious danger. The Corinthians in this church here were not wise. Paul's already said it. They were not wise. They're not spiritual. They're not capable of making good judgments, actually. They're dangerously proud. And here they are sitting in judgment on God's leaders, saying, Paul, meh, Apollos, yeah, he's pretty good, making all sorts of dumb calls. Pride is leading them to some seriously dangerous judgments. Now, what about you? What about me? Is pride a danger for us? Now, some of you guys aren't Christians and you still need to make some decisions about what you're going to do with all this Jesus stuff, right? And I'm glad that you're here with us tonight. There's another chance to think about this stuff together. Now, tonight as you sit here, if you're not a Christian, you don't have the Apostle Paul in front of you, okay? Just in case you're at all confused, you get Jono, the dude with no hair instead, right? You don't have the Apostle Paul, but what you do have is the message of Jesus, the message that God gave Paul sitting on your lap in the Word of God right there. You have the message of Jesus sitting there. And so what are you going to do with it? How do you view the Bible? Lots of people say the Bible's just a bunch of rubbish. They go, it's stupid, it's culturally irrelevant junk from some stupid old time ago, it's outdated, it's dumb, it's a myth, it's just a made-up fictional book. People say that about the Bible, right? If you're someone who thinks that about the Bible, here's my question. Have you actually looked closely at it yourself? Have you actually taken the time to read it and understand it and know what's going on there, check into its background and make a good judgment? Or have you just been proud and just kind of dismissing it? Now, you're here tonight listening to this, so I take it, I hope you're not doing that. But, but don't make the mistake of being proud and too quickly dismissing the Bible. Because in my experience, when, when anyone takes the time to actually engage with that book and read this thing and see what it has to say, they come to see it how they should. They come to see it as the very words of God. So don't too quickly dismiss this word from God. For many people, the thing that means they do that is they're proud. And they say, I know better, that's dumb, this is the 21st century, come on. Don't be proud. Have a look at what the Bible actually says. Secondly, though, for us who are Christians here tonight, is pride a danger for us? Yes. 
So how do you think about your leaders? That could come in a bunch of ways. Do you, do you kind of love some and kind of just quietly diss the other ones? And you find yourself going, I like the way that one preaches. He's pretty good, but this other one, no, they're not very good. He's a bit boring or whatever. I'm guilty of this myself. I literally find myself sitting in sermons, not listening to the Word of God for what it is as it's explained to me, but just sitting there critiquing it. I wouldn't have said it that way. I would like it if it was said a bit differently or whatever. And God's speaking through his word. And I'm sitting there worried about whether I like this preacher as much as that preacher. Maybe it's not with who's preaching. Maybe for you guys, you actually need to think about how you relate to your year group leaders. The people who've taken their time to be here and lead your G team week in, week out. I'll be honest with you guys, right? I'll be honest about your leaders. I include myself in this. Some of your leaders are really cool and fun people, right? And you guys are like looking at it like, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're youthful, they're crazy, they're fun to be around, good times, right? But some of us are just dorks. Seriously, some of us are just a bit boring and a bit plain and we're not that fun. And now you're teasing your leader, good work. Um, But is that stuff what makes someone a good leader or not? Seriously, is that what actually matters? No. Is your leader faithful to the message of the gospel? Is your leader pointing you to Jesus? Because if they're doing that, they're a good leader. You might get on with one leader above another, and that's okay. But don't judge your leaders with a worldly grid. Don't sit in judgment over your leaders for stupid reasons. A prize is a seriously dangerous thing. First of all, it leads us to make wrong judgments. But here's the second thing to see in this passage. Have a look at verse 7. Pride takes credit for stuff that you didn't even do. Look at verse 7. He says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What do you have that isn't a gift from God? The answer is nothing. See, the Corinthian problem was they're, they're proud, boasting about their leaders. This one's good, this one's no good. They're choosing one over the other. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Why are, you, why are you doing this? Where did you get your leaders from in the first place? That you think you can be proud of one and down on the other. Where did you get them from? They were a gift from God to you. And in fact, as you read the first three chapters of Corinthians, as we've done, Paul says this about everything they have. It's all a gift from God. In chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, their very salvation, your salvation, is a gift from God. It was given to you. Chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, growth as a Christian is a gift from God. Can't be proud of that either. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, we saw this last week. Their leaders are a gift from God, put there by God himself. And so why boast about something that you didn't do, that got given to you? You can't boast about it, you can't be proud of it. And guys, this is true of actually everything in all of life. Everything in all of life. See, when you come to the terms with the fact that there is a creator God who made everything in this world, including you, when you come to the terms with the fact that there is a sovereign God who rules all of this world, including you and everything about you, there's literally nothing that you can or should be proud of. There's nothing. Nothing you can be proud of on your own. Have you ever played this game? I just made this game up this week, but the kind of what did I actually do to get here game? Have you ever played that game in your own head? I'll tell you how it goes. Pretty much you sit there and you think about life and you're like, really, on my own, just up to me, what have I done to get to where I am? Play that game with me for a second. 
All right, you're nailing school. You're really good at that. You're getting good marks. You're good at guitar. So good that you're in the band or whatever. You're a heaps good soccer player or something like whatever. Did you decide which country you were going to get born in? That put you in the place you are to get the skills and the training you got to be where you are? Did you choose which family to be born in that would give you one privilege over another person who didn't get the opportunities you'd get? Can you take credit for the education you've got up to now, which was given to you because you live in in a country like Australia and some kid in India never got it because he just wasn't born in Australia? Can you take credit for any of that? Can you even take credit for your genetics? You're faster than that person, even though you both train as hard as each other. Well, what did you do? You got born with good genes. Can you poke fun at your youth pastor because he's got no hair and you've got a luscious full head of hair? No, it's just your genetics and half of you will well catch up with you anyway. You didn't choose any of that stuff. It's stuff, someone likes that. Some of that, it's just, it's just caught up. It's stuff that just happened to you. So much of who you are and what you achieve in this life is actually the product of external factors, stuff that just happens to you. Very little of who you are is because you were really good and you did this or that. But here's the real surprise, here's the crazy thing, all of those external factors that when you think about it actually rule your life, they're not controlled by you, but they are controlled by someone. All of those things are a gift from God. All those things are controlled by God. So God has given you everything you have. An old old school guy called John Calvin said this about life. Check it out. He said, No room is left for taking pride in ourselves when it is by God's grace we are what we are. By God's grace, you are what you are. And so not only is pride dangerous, as we saw, it's also just stupid. It's really stupid. It's taking credit for stuff that you didn't do. God did it. It was all Him. And so, guys, remembering that reality, remembering what we've just seen there, is the antidote for pride. It'll cure you of pride if you can remember that. See, when you're tempted to take pride in something, doesn't matter what it is, just stop and think deeply for a second And realize that God was really gracious to give you whatever that thing is. And praise Him for it instead of stealing His praise for yourself. Thank Him for His goodness instead of stealing His credit and His glory. And guys, here's the thing. This actually frees you up to know how to to handle the fact that there are actually things that you are good at. That you have been blessed with. Sometimes you know you're good at something, right? Um, But you know you shouldn't be proud... And so you don't really know how to deal with that. And so it kind of gets weird and you kind of pretend that you're not good at stuff or you just don't know how to cope with it. It's so transparent. You know, that person who's like, oh, I'm no good at study. I've only got 98% in the HSC. You know, I'm no good compared to the other 99% people. And and, and people are like, what are you talking about? You're clearly good at study. Or, you know, I'm no good at running. I'm sure I'm okay, but... The other people at the Nationals Championship, they were heaps faster than them. And, and you kind of pretend as if you're not good at it or something like that. You don't have to do that. When you recognize that a good God was the one who gave it to you, you don't need to pretend that God hasn't gifted you in this way or that way. You can thank Him for it. Praise Him for what He's done in you. So if you've got good leaders like the Corinthians thought they did, 
You could be proud of it and go, oh, I'm so good, I'm in a good church. Or you could praise God that he gave them to you in the first place. If you're gifted for some sort of a ministry, you're a good EV Kids teacher or you're good at um, whatever it is around the place, right? You're serving in some way and you're actually doing pretty good at it. You could be proud about it. You might be tempted to boast about it. Or you could praise God that he's gifted you to serve him in that way in the first place because he did it. If one day you're one of those people who have heaps of money, enough that you can be really, really generous and give away lots of it for the sake of the gospel... You could boast about how cashed up you are and how much money you make or you could praise God that in the first place he gave it to you and use what he's given you to glorify him. And so guys, you don't have to go through life pretending you've got nothing to offer and nothing good going on, you know, no no gifts, no resources, no good things. Go through life redirecting your praise to the giver of those good gifts. Thank him for what he's done in you. Thank him for what he's done in other people because it's all God. And so there's the antidote to pride. There's one more serious thing that we've got to see in this passage tonight about pride though, and this really is the most important thing we're going to see, because this is a big deal. Here's the third thing. Pride gets the Christian life upside down. Pride gets the Christian life upside down. So check out the last bit of our passages from verse 8 there. And this is a funny part of the Bible because I think Paul's getting a bit salty here. I think he's actually been sarcastic at some points. Have a look at verse 8 and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 8. He says, Already you Corinthians have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. You can catch some of the sarcasm there. He's like, I wish you really were the kings of the world and awesome and all that because we're Christians too and we could reign together with you. But you're not and I'm not. And in fact, in verse 9, Paul starts talking about what his life is really like. He's not a king. Instead, look in verse 9. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession like those condemned to die in the arena like the slaves who would get chucked in the gladiator ring to get killed for people's entertainment. It's pretty lowly. Uh, We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured and we are dishonoured. He's, he's been sarcastic. You can tell that because he's actually said what he... In verse 10, he says, you're so wise in Christ. But actually, just a few pages earlier, he said, you're not wise. You're chasing the wisdom of the world, which is actually dumb. You've missed out on true wisdom. We know what Paul thinks of their wisdom. And he's saying it's nothing. It's, 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 this is sarcasm, right? He's, he's having a dig. And he keeps going in verse 11. He says... To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we work hard with our own hands, we are cursed, when we are cursed, we bless, when we are persecuted, we endure it, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That's a pretty colourful description of someone's life. I mean, you're like, what have you been up to this week? And you're like, well, I've been mistreated and persecuted and I've become the scum. Like, it's, it's a pretty heavy lift, right? It's a pretty colourful picture of his life. 
Um, it doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound easy. It's anything but glamorous and, and successful. Now, why has Paul been so salty to the Corinthians? Why is he like sarcastic about how good they are? And then he's like, let me tell you what I'm really like in real life. Why does he do all of that? Look at verse 14. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. He cares about them. They're gripped by pride and he's worried for them. He wants to warn them because they're getting the Christian life upside down. Paul's life is full of suffering and persecution. He's working humbly with his own hands to pay his way like a slave. When, when, When people mistreat him, he's kind to them. When he's persecuted, he endures it. He looks weak and he looks foolish to the world around him. But the Corinthians, that's not them. That's not what they're like. That's not what they want to be like. They're proud. They want to appear wise to the world around them. They want to look strong. They want to look in fashion and and on trend. They, 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 They want to look like kings, not like servants. But it's the opposite of the Christian life. They're trying to live the opposite of the Christian life. So who does Paul remind you of? Who does his life, what does that remind you of there as you look at that list? Who else was publicly humiliated and put on display to die in front of the world? It's the Lord Jesus when he went to the cross. Who looked weak and pathetic? It was Jesus on the cross. And they turned to him and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself and come down from the cross? And they taunt him and he's made to look weak and helpless. Who turned the other cheek and blessed even when they were being cursed by the people around them? Who was homeless and had no place to lay his head? It was Jesus. Paul's life reflects Jesus' life. And so Paul isn't doing this because he's just some crazy guy. He's doing it because he's a follower of Jesus. He's he's following in his master's footsteps. And that's what Jesus says we need to do. This isn't just for Paul. Jesus said, if anyone, if anyone would come after me and follow me, take up your own cross and follow me into suffering in a hard life. And so Jesus' life, Paul's life here in this passage shows us the shape of the real Christian life. It's not about being rich and successful and powerful. and It's the complete opposite of that. And the, the Corinthians are running in the opposite direction of the real Christian life. They've got it upside down. Uh, this week in the NBA Finals, a guy called J.R. Smith made history for his team, the Cleveland, Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, but not in a good way. So let me set the scene. There's eight seconds left in this game, and his team is losing by one point. Eight seconds to go, one point down. Um, his teammate here is taking two free throws. They're each worth one point. And so the guy shoots the first shot, he gets it in, which means the teams are now tied. It's going to go into overtime if they don't win the game. Tied up, and his teammate takes the second shot right here, and he misses it. And so the ball goes loose. Lucky for J.R. Smith, who plays for the Cavs, though, he grabs the rebound and he's right at his end, ready to score the basket. You can see him there with the basketball. And he's, like, unmarked, like no one's on him. He's got eight seconds to score. He could win the game. Um, But instead of shooting the ball, 
he runs the opposite way away from the ring because in his head, he thought they were already winning. He had the score wrong and so he just starts dribbling the ball off up the court and his teammate LeBron is like, what are you doing? Go back that way and he's freaking out Uh, and this picture shows his uh, teammate LeBron James pretty much losing his mind. He's like, we were tied. What were you doing? And there's another close-up just for for lols. There you go. He's having a bad day. Uh, J.R. Smith was literally running the opposite direction that he should have been. He couldn't have had it more wrong if he was trying to lose the game for his team. It was a shocker. Now, when it comes to a basketball game, I think that's kind of hilarious, particularly because I'm a Warriors fan, right? So that's, that's good news for me. But to do that in the Christian life, that's completely devastating. Because your life is much more than a game. Because in the end, you could get your whole life wrong. Follow the wrong Jesus. Now remember, we're playing for an audience of one. If you're a Christian, there's one person that you're worried about the opinion of, and it's God. He's the one who will judge our hearts, our thoughts, our, our motives. He's the one we need to care about. Imagine getting to the end and meeting Jesus and having him say to you, you got the Christian life completely upside down. You did it wrong. I can't imagine anything else worse than hearing those words. This Corinthian Christianity got it completely backward. They're running the wrong direction. And Jesus is calling to them and he's saying, come back to me. Paul's saying, come back and follow Jesus. Run the way you're meant to. The Corinthians wanted to be worldly. What would it look like for us today to get the Christian life backwards like them? What would it look like if we were doing that here today? How would you know what would it look like? Because we do face the same dangers as these guys. We seriously do. We live in a a part of the world where the culture that we live in is so different to the message of the gospel. We face the same dangers as these guys. So maybe you could get Christian life backwards by seeking out preaching and a church that's just saying stuff you want it to say. There's lots of good churches out there, don't get me wrong. But some churches um, can be so keen to be liked by the world out there and so keen even for, for good reasons, for people to hear about Jesus. They want people to hear about Jesus so badly uh, that they start to preach a Corinthian Christianity. Come to Jesus and life now is going to be really, really good for you. You'll be happy and rich and successful and life's just going to be awesome if you're a Christian that's not true. Christian life is hard. There's lots that's good about it as well, but it's full of sacrifice. It's hard. Sometimes people won't like you because you're a Christian. It doesn't make you more popular or make life better automatically. It won't be comfortable. It won't be easy. And so be very wary of anyone who tries to tell you that's what Christianity is about. It's not actually about making your life really, really good now in the way we think of good, at least, anyway. It's not about that. Secondly, maybe you could get the Christian life backward by becoming proud about your own church right here. That could happen. In some ways, as you look at it through human eyes, Eva Youth can look pretty impressive. It is, it's a big youth ministry. There's lots of good stuff going on here. Lots of people are becoming Christians. Um, and you need to remember that God does give good gifts, he does good things among us, right? He's been generous to us. But if you start to 
evaluate your church and get proud about it through a worldly lens like that and go, look how big we are or successful or whatever, you got the Christian life backward, full of pride like the Corinthians. Give thanks to God for His good gifts and what He's done among us, but don't measure yourself by the world's view of success. Third, maybe you could get the Christian life backwards by refusing to face hard stuff with Jesus, by refusing to to stick your neck out for Him. And so you're all in for Jesus when it's fun and your friends are doing it too and that's all good, but what about when people start bagging you out for being a Christian? What about when you're made to feel like some sort of a crazy bigot because you believe in the Bible? And people are like, I can't believe you think that. That's so old-fashioned, so out of date. Corinthian Christianity wants to be liked by the world. It wants to be like the world and it wants to be liked by the world. Real Christianity wants to be like Jesus and it wants to please Jesus. That's what it's on about. And Jesus' way is the way of suffering and humiliation, taking up your cross. Now, you've got to get this as you hear this as well. You've got to understand this. <laughs> Why did Paul suffer in all these ways as you look at it in this passage? Why did he suffer like that? Well, it wasn't because he was just like a psycho. He wasn't like, oh, I want to suffer like Jesus did, so I'm just going to go and pick as many fights and just try and get in a lot of trouble and make myself homeless. He didn't do this to himself on purpose, okay? He's not like that friend at school who's just trying to pick as many fights as he can until someone beats him up. That wasn't Paul. He lived the Christian life doing hard things for Jesus. You know, some, 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 some people tried to kill him and they're like, let's get him, let's murder him. And he didn't go, hooray, let me suffer like Jesus. He snuck out of the city in a basket in the middle of the night and escaped. So it's not about being sociopaths trying to get yourself killed, right? But he took risks for the gospel. He did hard stuff. He preached the humble message of the cross, even when people did hate him for it. But he did that because he knew they needed to hear the message. And so you don't need to go and try and find trouble for yourself till you feel good about yourself. If you live the Christian life and if you go hard, this stuff will come and find you as well. Maybe not in exactly the same way that it did for Paul, but it'll come and find you. Are you up for that? Are you ready to leave behind your pride and go Jesus' way and live this way? It's not easy. But in the end, how good will it be to hear these words from God? Well done, good and faithful servant. It's nothing better than that. Let's pray together.